0: Welcome to this edition of The Vasey View. The Vasey View takes a deep dive into European tech and public policy. And every fortnight I visit a country and try and find out what the secret source of its tech success is, or I talk to a successful European tech company to discover the secret of its success, or I talk to a commentator to give me an overview of the European tech scene. And from those conversations, I try and take lessons for public policy that they can take away with them. And today I'm delighted to say I have two guests, one of whom slightly breaks the rules, which I'll explain in a minute. Uh, but the reason I wanted these two guests on my podcast is that they both are partners in venture funds, which are very much focused on public policy and regulation. That is to say that they back companies who are breaking the mould, but coming up against what I like to refer to as the analog regulation world and trying to change it. And these are exactly the kind of companies that policymakers should be engaged in to kind of understand where regulation and policy is holding back innovation. The first guest is Leo Ringer, who is a general partner at Form uh, Ventures. He's spent more than a decade advising policymakers, companies and investors on public policy in regulation, including at the highest levels of government in the UK and at the CBI, which is the UK's largest business lobby group, and at Global Council, a boutique advisory firm. And He set up Form Ventures with Patrick Newton in 2019. But alongside him, and this is where the rules are slightly broken, is Sal Curie, who is in Austin, Texas. And I want to talk about Austin, Texas at some point during this podcast, because obviously everyone is talking about Austin at the moment. But not to digress... Sal is a former law professor at the University of Chicago and the founder of its Innovation Clinic. He's advised startups on regulatory strategy across industries. And Trust Ventures, like Form Ventures, uh, looks at startups that are taking on society's greatest challenges and they're building a portfolio that will bring progress to a range of industries held back by public policy barriers. So let's dive straight in with Leo and Sal. It's not often I have two guests, so you'll have to work out between yourselves and you're properly socially distanced as one of you is in Texas, as one of you is in the UK. In fact, I understand neither <laughs> of you have actually met in person because you found yourself yourselves on the internet and realised you were doing similar things, which is why you wanted to kind of I link up and why we came up with this idea of doing the podcast together. But you'll have to work out who answers what question, when. But let me just begin with an overview question, which I sort of, I know the answer to because it's something that I bang on about all the time, but I'd love to hear your views. Why should a startup, two people in their back bedroom starting a company only focused on the consumer and changing that world for the consumer, why should they be thinking about public policy and regulation? Let's start with Leo.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. It's the same question we started with. And I think there are probably two things from our perspective, and I'm sure Sal will but we'll add to that, the first is that we see startups going after essentially bigger and more complex prizes and, and markets. So it's no longer just sort of a, a, an app on your phone. It's now the way you organize the social care of your elderly parents or the the way you're going to meet in the future or the way you're going to, or, um, you're going to uh, run your personal finances. These are really kind of societally critical things. And they're the kind of things that policymakers really care about. And so therefore they're markets, which have this these regulatory frameworks around them already, and and they've changed and they will change. And and therefore, for a startup, success or failure is is completely dependent on understanding and navigating those those rules effectively. Often, you can't even begin to trade, you can't even make your first sale, if you haven't thought carefully about how to get that license or, or get to market in the first place. But the second one, which I think is sort of almost more important, is that, you know, tech disruption is having a really profound impact now on our lives. I think there was a time you know, maybe, maybe 10 years ago when policymakers and Ed, you'll, you'll, you'll tell me whether I'm wrong, but thought of tech as this great thing. It's, it's innovation and it's jobs and it's sort of, how can we get more of it? And how can we be cheerleaders for it? And now, as I think, you know, startups are taking on these more complicated markets, policymakers are beginning to realize, hold on, these are, these are issues that we actually need to be in control of. We need to know what's happening and we need to have our hand on the reins. And I think, I think there's two effects of sort of startups taking on these more complex markets and, and policymakers beginning to realize they need a they need to say are kind of colliding, and that's it's that interface at which we we think there's interesting opportunity.
2: A lot of the low-hanging
1: fruit in technology seems to have been picked, right? These
2: easy kind of enterprise software companies that have the luxury of just completely avoiding the world of policy have been built, uh, and, and as more companies touch these areas of of course societal need, right? They're going to collide with the world of atoms uh, increasingly. Um, and so, you know, to solve those societal log jams, you're dealing with new solutions to old problems, and those old problems have old solutions that have been enshrined in law, right? And and laws don't change on their own, so it's it's often necessary to kind of modernize them, right? They they sort of you, you look at industries like energy or uh, construction or healthcare, right? You know, predominantly in the U.S., I think you look at these these industries and you say these are these are sort of problems that have persisted for for decades or even centuries. Uh, and so there's law on the books going back fifty or more years that sort of just hasn't changed on its own. And I think the second thing I'd point out is is that there are, I think places where uh, you have to navigate regulation and policy more than you would have in in the past, right? You look at sort of the Wild West days like a proper text, and I should I should bring that up back before Uber and Airbnb, right where you know the city councils were sort of not aware of what companies were doing. I think there's an increasing recognition uh, on the part of lawmakers at at various jurisdictional levels, that it's important to know what startups are doing. So I think you you sort of just can't avoid uh, regulators in a a way that you you may have, you know, 10 or more years ago. Uh, And I think that, you know, there's also kind of some of the less successful stories, right, as in pure pure lending, where the companies that didn't take the time to get it right, uh, ante, wound up suffering the consequences, post, or you look at the 23 of the where I think it just becomes important if you're if you're starting a company to think critically about your you know your regulatory uh, challenges. challenges and to to make sure that you're proactively solving it rather than reactive.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting. So the whole mantra of move fast and break things, you think, should kind of change to uh, ring up your congressman and have a discussion. Uh, at what point does a kind of startup start to lobby? Is it? Would you say you know? Uh, you know, famously, you know, the PowerPoint presentation and the business plan, like the battle plan, get ripped up the minute you start selling to the consumer. But are you saying that as part of that business plan there should be a kind of regulatory and policy engagement plan for a lot of companies?
2: I think absolutely, right? I think if you're if you're building something in, in an industry that is, is heavily regulated, which is where our focus and I believe Forums focuses as well, you have to be thinking about these things from day one. I'm not saying that answer is move slowly and, and don't change anything. I'm saying, though, that the answer is you have to be thinking about you know what your strategy is. And that may be bringing up your congressman preemptively. That may be making sure that you're building something to compliance. I think not thinking of of regulation is, is just sort of not an option today. Can I just ask
0: you, uh, Leo and Sal, in terms of you kind of, I mean, Leo, you said to me before we started recording that you had kind of, you're the only fund doing this in Europe and you In terms of finding like-minded people, you had to go to Austin, Texas and find Sal, as it were, online. You haven't even met in person. I mean, how do you kind of uh, construct a venture fund that's focused on public policy? Is this something that kind of scares away investors or is your pitch to investors backing a startup that's going into a regulated market is, is a great idea because you potentially
1: can shape the future shape of that market, if you like? it's a great question and it's a challenge we we rightly get a lot from from investors that we pitch and our answer is is just look at the data so in the UK uh, we broke down that the unicorns we've had here and, and all venture funds really it's an outlier game we we're, we're not targeting middling outcomes you know we we we're investing for form at seed stage in in you know say 30 companies and we're expecting one or two of those to be big outlier successes and that's the that's the way, you know, these funds return multiples of their capital. Um, and if you look at the UK, the unicorns we've had, you know, we, we'd argue that probably 70 to 80% of them are in markets where public policy and regulation are really big factors. You know, we use the shorthand regulated markets where these issues play a material role. So, so in a sense, we're just led by led by the data and one lens on what's worked so far in the UK and Europe is that we're pretty good at producing big outcomes in these markets, so, so why not go after them? And then the second insight from a fund perspective, why, why do a fund in this space is there's more and more competition now. Startups have more and more options, more and more very credible, sophisticated investors out there looking for the best deals. And any fund that wants to return capital has to answer the question, how do we get into the good deals when we see them? It's not enough to just have a strategy where you focus, but how do you actually win access to those deals? And that for us is by having a very, very clear differentiated value. We've got to tell those founders what we're going to bring to the table at that early stage the value we're going to add. And for us, that is leveraging our you know, decades worth of policy expertise in our network to say, we can help you optimize for those, those big questions that you face in, in your market. And one of the things that I learned as an advisor in particular about the early stages, these, these, you know, as you said, are two two people in their basement, they, they don't have a public policy team to hand. They're not lift with a couple of hundred policy staff or, or, or whatever it might be. You know, they need this help and they don't have access to it elsewhere. They haven't got the cash to pay for it. They wouldn't know where to go if they did. And so we provide essentially a, a big missing component of that early team skill set. And that's the value we bring to the founders. And they really, they really understand that. And I think it's the same with, with Sal and his colleagues in the US. So it's both about where we're investing, but it's also about how we're helping these companies.
0: Sal, since you've gatecrashed uh, my podcast, which is obviously exclusively focused on
1: Europe, um,
0: can I just pitch you against uh, Leo to a certain extent in the sense of the difference between US and European policy. Baking? I mean, in Europe, we're lucky. Uh, or in the UK, for example, I think we're lucky is maybe the wrong word, but we have a a relatively innovative approach, I think, to tech policy. We have what is called, as it were, the sandbox for fintech, for example, where regulators and startups can actually kind of work together to look at where a startup is, is challenging, as it were, the established set of regulations. My sense is that in the US, what you're trying to do is fiendishly complicated because changing anything at the federal level Seems pretty daunting, but also to a certain extent, and it's one of the sort of weird kind of myths, if you like, about the U.S. It's not one market; it's fifty markets. How do you approach U.S. policy change?
2: That's not too big a question. Yeah, yeah, I think you've got it. So you know, like, it's it's fifty is an optimistic number, right? There are fifty states. Uh, then there's federal law, right, and the the sort of opportunity set that exists there. And then there's all the municipalities out there, right? right. And, and that's sort of city level laws. And so we touch all sorts of different technologies from 3D printed houses out of concrete to modular nuclear reactors to you know, healthcare uh, systems that are primarily software driven. Each of those has a very different engagement strategy. And, and I agree with your characterization of it that it is fiendishly complicated, but the spoils are, are ever larger the more that you kind of move towards these sort of society-altering sorts of products, right? Where you can solve poor societal problems, you reap our bigger rewards, both in terms of your societal impact and in the growth of the companies. So we think, you know, it's worth it. Uh, and that fiendish difficulty is, is our friend in the sense that, you know, we are pitching these startups on why they our help, And I think uh, that, that just goes to, you know, I think we're, we're telling the same story that, that Forum does. But, but we don't have, you know, one sort of, one sort of entry point, like a sandbox, where everyone can just go and and sort of interface with somebody who's tasked with helping them. I think we're just a much more fractious system. Uh, And so as a result of that, where you show up in a city council or where you show up in a state house, uh, you might hear very different things, right? All the incentives at play are disneyingly complicated. and, And that's sort of how we built the fund. So my thesis here was that if you want to do more than just pick the low-hanging fruit, if you want to to sort of really touch these society-altering industries, right, the the healthcare and the construction and the energy industry, things that can really kind of change the way that that billions of people live their lives, you need to be able to address these complex policy challenges. And and I think the fact that it's many different sets of lawmakers maybe belies the the difficulty or ease of actually changing things because some of them are going to be a lot more receptive. Uh, some of them are going to be you know, easier to move on certain things.
0: Would you ever advise a founder that was based in one state to move to another state? So this is a great idea, but you, you won't get anywhere in X state. You should move
2: to Y state. Well, yes. You, you point out uh, that we're based in Austin, Texas, and that's by design. Uh, so a few years ago, you know, we looked at, at the sort of impact that we can make in different states, and we said, you know, Texas is a place where innovation is sort of put at the forefront and, and where there, there is a kind of more progressive approach to, to sort of modernizing law uh, to, to allow for innovation and to be hospitable to, to innovation. Yeah. There are other places, and you know, I think you can you can guess which ones they are, where I think the, the interest group's rank, But this is, it really kind of comes up on an issue-by-issue issue basis. There is no state where everything's perfect. And, you know, most companies that we'll invest in, Have you know the desire to to address the entire US market. And so it's often about how do we show you know the positive impact we can have in the other 38, 40, et cetera, states and and make them exemplar so that it becomes very difficult not to operate everywhere. Where where there'll be pressure in those states to to be able to change them. So it's really more about sequencing than it is about saying, let's just give up on large swaths of the consumer.
0: So I want to talk about some of the specific companies you both support and also about some of the themes, the sectors, if you like, which are highly regulated, but also massive opportunities for tech. And I just want to stick with Sal for a bit. I promise you I'm not ignoring you, Leo, but because you mentioned 3D home building and Icon. And I think if we look at each uh, some of the portfolio companies, it'll tease out some of the themes that I, I find very interesting. So the reason I fixed on Icon is because it seems to me that housing, you know, we've been building houses in the same way for a kind of 150 years. And if ever there was any market that needed disruption in terms of being able to build houses quickly and cheaply and where the technology is there, uh, housing is one of them. And yet I think one of the things that holds back housing is not necessarily regulation, it's more to do with the established marketplace, it being, without wishing to get sued, a kind of oligopoly where certain large house builders have a a hold on the marketplace and are resistant themselves to change. So what is the kind of tension, perhaps taking Icon as an example, but between the, the regulator and policymakers, who might be quite amenable to 3D printed houses, and the incumbents? Yeah,
2: I think it's a, it's a great example because you know, like you said, sticks and bricks is the way we built houses for a thousand years, and you know, when, when you look at sort of addressing this need, you know, affordable housing is is really a crisis, right? It is a, it is a huge problem in the United States, in the UK, worldwide, uh, and something like a three D printed home in concrete is a, you know, durable, dignified housing that that can be built in 24 hours and at roughly half the cost uh, for the core structure of the house.
0: Yeah, so like a no-brainer,
2: no-brainer, exactly, and that's that's really what our fund is built on. What are the societal no-brainers <laughs> that have all kinds of complex regulatory and political obstacles that we can help solve? And in that case, you've got you know the international building code, international fire code, uh, and then you've got local zoning and you've got local permitting boards, right? And, and oftentimes, it's not sort of a controversial thing, right? Like people look at you know gambling or, or other kind of you know, cannabis, and they think, oh, those are heavily regulated. The way we look at it is we say, what are the things that are no brainers?" but where where the law just sort of wasn't written to take account of some new technology? And Icon is just a perfect example. When they were writing these zoning codes 50 years ago, no one was thinking about someone coming along with a concrete printer and (laughs)
0: pulling out in 24 hours. And So I think there's an educational challenge there. Uh, And in many cases, we look at where
2: can that be kind of scalable, right? Like the international building code for for this example. But, But others are sort of completely different. So look at... A company we've investigated in called visibly. It's an online eye exam. You can get a new prescription online in you know, just a few minutes. and save yourself the trip to the uh, the eye doctor. And in twenty-four percent of US counties, there isn't even an optometrist, which means people are driving the county or two over to get their eyes checked, which is not what you want people <laughs> driving long distances to do. I
0: have got to say that uh, you won't you probably won't know this, Sal, but driving to check your eyesight has become a great political <laughs> Uh, meme in the in the UK based on a particular advice of the Prime Minister. But I digress because this <laughs> is fascinating about uh, optometry.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's something that you know feels again like a no-brainer, right? Two and a mm-hmm. half billion people worldwide can't get their eyes checked. Sure. Software is the only thing that's gonna solve that problem, right? And so this company we've invested in has this incredible solution. You get an eye, you know, a prescription signed by yeah. an MDI doctor. In a couple of states they, they try to ban it, right. right? They have this legislation pending that said something to the effect of, telehealth is great for everything except the following three categories. And it would have these examples, right? And that's this is where you, you see the, the influence of different interests. And it would be, you know, opioids, which, okay, <laughs> that makes sense, abortion drugs, right? Political hot potato. And then, eye exams, right? Which one of these is not like the others, right? And you just you just see the influence of the American Optometric Association. and. You know, we worked with the company to successfully get that language stripped out of there, but it's a great example where the interest group that supports banning online eye exams is strong, even though it's against the interest of almost everybody in the state, right? Yeah. And we pulled together coalitions of affordable health advocates, rural health advocates, inner city health advocates, large companies like Walmart, like all these all these different stakeholders who said, of course, we should have a cheaper. Highly effective eye high exam that doesn't require able to take a day off of work or drive two hours. Right, this is a no-brainer. Um, and, and so, when you can organize some of that, some of that you know, obvious energy among among consumers and advocacy groups, you can actually change some of these things. But it's it's not easy to do in a vacuum, and, and that's sort of why we in Ford exist.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So, Leo, just turning some of your um, portfolio companies. I mean, one that sung out to me was Organize, which I've sort of in my notes written down is a sort of tech trade union, or to be more accurate, a a trade union for the digital age. It's a platform that allows people to generate campaigns, as it were. But as a politician myself, I'm used to getting kind of endless form emails from constituents driven by a campaign group. But this is slightly different. And this, this was interesting to me because this was actually not necessarily a kind of how do we influence regulation, but it's a kind of the other side of the coin, which is how can technology change political activism? That, that's right, and it's
1: it's really activism focused on on employers. So, organize help employees come together online, organize campaigns towards their employer. That might be, be about their pay or work conditions, and and essentially lobby for lobby for change and surface issues. And that has traditionally, as you said, taken taken place through trade unions. But you know, trade union membership is plummeting and in the single digits, certainly in the UK, and and it's no longer for a vast number of, of people working—you know—a a relevant and effective way to, to to express these kind of preferences and, and find these kind of issues. So, so that's the, the gap that organizers are taking on, and it's a, it's a hugely important one, particularly as you know, work changes, the, the nature of work changes, um, and that's going to be a massive issue for, for policymakers over the next twenty years. It already is, and we can talk more about about the kind of gig economy question. But but for for, for, for organizers as a company, it's 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 that white space that's being created by the you know, the, essentially the, the change from one way of doing things to another and, and, and where it's actually, it is relevant to the policy and it is relevant to regulation in, in some of the ways that, that Sal was talking about is, you know, the trade union model is regulated. It's subject to, to, to law, as, as you'll know, Ed, there's a huge swathe of, of labor market law, which is changing, which I used to work on at the, at the business department here in the UK. And all of that defines the space in which organized operates. It, it, they themselves are not doing a, a regulated activity in the traditional sense, but their playing field Looks like it looks because of these other pillars of regulation around trade unions, around employment. so this is, again to come back to kind of a, a real point of ours is the activity you're doing as a company doesn't have to be regulated itself. you don't have to be subject to a license and, and with someone looking over your shoulder for this stuff to be meaningful because actually what it's doing is shaping where the opportunity is and that's that's really true of organize and, and the guys there are doing an amazing job of, of of taking on that taking on that space.
0: But just diving a bit deeper into organize because I am mildly fascinated by. it. Give us an example of a campaign that organises one, but also how uh, how does it make money?
1: Yeah. So Organise have, have had a huge amount of success already, uh, despite being really early stage campaigning across uh, issues like sexual harassment at Ted Baker, where the CEO is doing things he, he shouldn't have done at Amazon around working conditions and pay. And these are, these are sort of, you, you can Google these, these are headline successes for a, a very new product. And it's driven by, I think, employees just recognising this stuff matters. It's incredibly viral. It's incredibly powerfully distributed because one person's success is another person's success. And also it travels across offices, across borders incredibly quickly. It's not constrained in the traditional sense by the place you work or the team you work in, or even the country you work in. So for a a company like Amazon with potentially hundreds of thousands of workers globally, once employees start recognizing there are common issues around maybe the, the nature of a shift. And start campaigning on that. It can be it can be incredibly powerful. This has all been built on a platform which is self-funding so far. But the, the team do plan to monetize, and they're, they're building a premium product to, to, to deepen the offer to people uh, who come on through, through maybe maybe acquired through a campaign, and then realize that there's much more uh, they can get out of the out of the product than just that initial campaign through a subscription option. And you know, we were happy, really happy to back the team nanbex um, because of their pedigree in in, in building campaigning products because of the size of the market they're tackling before they'd even address the question of how they make money and that's i think a a common thing that people struggle with with early stage investing is well surely you can't invest until you know how someone's going to make money well actually the commercial model isn't necessarily the most important question on day one the question is how big is the opportunity you're tackling is this team the best team to tackle it and um did they have the vision to get there And, and, and that was absolutely the case with with organize
0: Brilliant. Well, I don't want to disappear down an organised rabbit hole. I just want to talk about some of the themes, policy themes that kind of your portfolio companies collide with and which people listening to this podcast will be interested in. I mean, Sal, for example, we've had the big um, gig economy fight in California, and we've had the gig economy debate here in the UK about uh, what kind of rights gig uh, workers should have. So... How's that playing out? I mean, that's a very good example of where, going back to my kind of reference to move faster, break things, and, and you were talking earlier, Sal, about Uber and how that you know, just tried to stay one step ahead of the authorities, as it were, as it built out its, its business model. This is where effectively tech has come up with a new business model and policy hasn't kept pace. How does that kind of play out in terms of the US debate and, indeed, Leo, in the, in the UK?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think you know the big news here is is you look at the passing of Prop 22 in California uh, and it seems to be an indication that that workers and consumers appreciate the flexibility of of these sort of new work arrangements, right? They they enjoy access to Instacart and Uber and these other conveniences. And I think you know we should be looking at the best way to make rules around a new reality of how people work, not trying to fit every new opportunity into 50-year-old categories. So the gig economy is certainly evolving, and I think that's creating opportunities in new areas like manufacturing with, with high-paying and experience building jobs as well. We we have a portfolio company called Variable, spelled Variable, very V-E-R-Y-A-B-L-E, uh, which has created an on-demand resource for staffing up factory labor. And it's just been a godsend for for factories trying to kind of staff up and down during this tumultuous year of the So I think a lot of exciting things on the horizon there and some... I think some positive uh, developments on on the policy front,
0: or at least uh, indications. And Leo, it's a it's a big debate here in the UK as well how the how the gig worker economy should be regulated.
1: It is, and, and the UK is already a, a jurisdiction in which you know labour market rules are relatively flexible, and and even here it's had a massive impact on the on the policy debate. And I think you know Europe has a an even more intense version of that question, given the nature of the social contract and, and the way that employment and labour is. Has traditionally been regulated in, in in Europe and in the UK. It's had a it's had a profound effect. And I think personally, I believe that you know, as Sal said, people will work in the way ultimately they, they they choose and prefer to work. And and we see models you know flexing to accommodate that. I think the thing that policymakers will will never let go of, and and rightly so, is that there are some baseline sort of expectations and norms there, and that people are people have you know the safety net, as it were. But I don't think that safety net just needs to come from, from the government. I think, you know, if you look at a, a portfolio company of ours called Wallet, they are providing a, a way for those on much more flexible forms of employment. That might be self-employment, it might be gig workers who don't have um, specified shift patterns, who earn a different amount month to month. They help them solve the question of how do I, how do I live in a, in a world of monthly bills when my income is, is pretty variable? And because I because I want that income to be variable. So what Wallet do is they have a, a financial product which essentially smooths your income month to month, tops you up when you're below a certain level, debits from you when you're above a certain level, and gives you that income stability that you need to operate in a world where we kind of we, we, we traditionally have have monthly bills. And so I think that 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 safety net and that that ecosystem of services that can support people to make these different employment choices, whether it's you know, flexible employment or work from home or or, or whatever, you know, that's a huge opportunity for startups. I think hopefully policymakers will see the market kind of reorganizing itself and, and, and reducing the need for them to necessarily always step in and say, well, that's an issue we need to solve through, through regulation or through policy, because that might, might sometimes be the answer, but it, it quite often probably isn't isn't the answer. I,
0: I think that is a fascinating point because I think, first of all, obviously the, te- the tech world itself creates a marketplace for new kinds of services. So companies that support the geek economy worker is a very classic example of that. But also, I find it fascinating that policymakers don't step away, as it were, from the debate about regulation and talk more about the impact of tech on the sort of macro economy. I mean, I find it interesting, for example, that policymakers, when they talk about people's incomes, don't say, well, actually, in 2021 compared to, say, 10 years ago, if you had X, Y and Z service you would be saving potentially you know, 10% of your income. If you changed your mortgage every two years, if you had a product like Wallet, they don't, they don't bring into play the kind of benefits that these new tech companies are bringing to kind of the mainstream issues that they tend to talk about.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, they're, they're, as you say, they're not looked at holistically, but I think that's partly the way the government's structured. I mean, Sal talked about it in, in the US with the sort of layers the vertical layers, if you like, of sort of federal, state, you know, municipal, but in any jurisdiction, including in the UK, we have, you know, what you'll be familiar with that is the sort of the silos of policymaking, which is, you know, yeah, someone's exactly. job to worry about someone's personal income, someone else's job to worry about, you know, innovating for technology, it's someone else's job to worry about whatever it may be. Childcare is another instance from our portfolio where the childcare rules were written 15 years ago, and lo and behold, digital childcare doesn't have access to public funding for childcare, which the government's trying to get into the hands of parents, but the person sitting in that team somewhere in, in you know in government just has never had the question asked of them well what's the role of tech here, and, and doesn't have the incentives personally to kind of to really go away and explore that question so until we until we you know it's a classic sort of tourism of, of policy making but until we break down those silos and give everyone in government and in the tech world you know an incentive to understand the bigger picture the macro picture as he said then i think we'll kind of still end up in these little narrow you know alleyways And and stepping back from that kind of loosens you from whether it's departmental silos or regulatory silos, to say, well, where could regulators be playing a role? Where could it be solving? You know, we, we, We're down here trying to hammer away at a nut with, with a regulatory solution. And if we just step back a little bit, maybe the problem's being solved somewhere else. Uh, as, a,
2: as a University of Chicago person, I feel compelled to, to pounce on on Leo's uh, very correct mention of, of incentives. there, right? If you, if you put yourself in the mind of a lawmaker, at least in a given US state, there's often not some great pat on the back that you as a lawmaker get Uh, From some great new technology, which enhances people's lives, lowers costs, removes complexity from their lives, you don't get a pat on the back for some great new technology being allowed to operate. But you do get angry calls if and when something goes wrong. And so I think you're very poorly placed in many situations to to sort of run that cost-benefit analysis. And I think there is often sort of a, a baseline assumption of either saying no or saying not now. And it, it's very difficult as a as a startup, a new technology kind of showing up and trying to uh, demonstrate to that lawmaker the value of what you're trying to do. Because there there are kind of more compelling downside incentives in many cases than, than upside incentives. I think that, that requires lawmakers being forward thinking and engaging with the cost benefit in a holistic
0: way. Yeah, no, it's, it's true, it's true. No one ever got fired for saying no. And it's something as well that holds back Government itself in providing digital services, which is a whole other topic, which I'm not going to discuss on this podcast. But I wanted, because I wanted to keep uh, focused on some of the kind of themes where tech is having uh, an impact. We talked about the kind of creation of the geek economy and financial services is another very clear area where regulation and tech bump up against each other. But to be optimistic for a minute, uh, and Sal, you're building uh, nuclear reactors to put in people's back gardens. I've, I'm joking, but you're building the modular, (laughs) you invested in a company that's building modular nuclear reactors, which again is something I'm fascinated by considering the billions of dollars we're spending in the UK on what I think are extremely out of date uh, nuclear uh, reactors. But climate change is an obvious area where tech could and should have a major impact, and also where to a certain extent, no pun intended, there is a sort of green regulation environment. You know, because by definition, laws written 50 years ago certainly didn't take account of climate change. So there is potentially much more opportunity to shape the agenda.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's it is a it is an interesting moment. Right. I think more and more people have taken account of, of the criticality of bringing green technologies like to market. Uh, I think we look at this in terms of uh, sort of renewals and say, well, okay, great. Those are those are no brainer. but solar is great while the sun's shining and wind is great while the wind is blowing. But that isn't all the time and People that use energy all the time, and unless you make these technologies as or more accessible than hydrocarbons or cheaper or as cheap as hydrocarbons, it's tough to really address some of that kind of core energy need, like manufacturing, like developing world output. And so to us, we look at, at nuclear and we say, this is the only way to address base load, zero emission energy, right? The always on. Uh, kind of future of of how we get power to these places that we really need to get it in, in a world where we're gonna where we're gonna re- remove uh, emissions from the equation in a meaningful way. Um, so you know, we invested in a company here called Oaklab, which has built a modular two megawatt small reactor that works in our existing logistics framework. Uh, so it is factory manufactured like an automobile. Uh, it works in in the sort of existing. Uh, deployment logistics framework as well. So you you run it uh, off of an assembly line. It is then trucked by an eighteen wheeler up to, say, Alaska, where today they they make power from a diesel generator. And you throw one of these in the ground, and it is twenty years of, of zero emission power, uh, and it's dramatically safer than than anything that's been deployed in nuclear. Now, nuclear is one of these examples where very few companies have ever kind of ventured to do something new. Um, the technology, actually, in many ways isn't that new there was a there was a reactor that ran for 30 years from the 60s to the 80s called the experimental breeder reactor 2 run by Argonne Labs in the US it put out 3 cent electricity and and was incapable of, of overheating and, and melting down right it was a dramatically safer passive cool design and that's what Oaklo has effectively taken that technology and they've made it sort of accessible for for this more practical application the big news here is that this year Oaklo got the first ever in history Acceptance from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for this design. And this is acceptance to sort of roll these things off an assembly line to make this more of a product and less like a project, right? Nuclear traditionally been 30, 30 year builds, 100 plus million dollar site built building projects, product, right? And, and Oaklo is kind of shifting that paradigm and saying, what kind of power do, does the manufacturing sector need? Does the developing world need? Do these remote applications need? How do we actually Provide the supply to meet that demand, and make it practical and make it cheaper. But also, how do we do that in a world that, that kind of works within our existing regulatory framework? And that's that's really the key. In uh, many ways, the hardest thing about getting uh, a reactor to market is is getting regulatory. Framework.
0: Oh, totally. Yeah, I can imagine. I can't even begin to imagine the kind of regulatory hurdles you have to overcome to put a nuclear power plant on an eighteen-wheel truck and transport it somewhere. <laughs> But it is, I mean, it goes back to what I was talking to you about, Icon, the uh, 3D home building. It seems to me that it seems so obvious that low-cost modular reactors are the answer. And yet we're stuck in this kind of, we're stuck on the wrong track uh, of building these kind of billion, multi-billion dollar projects, which are are already 20 or 30 years out of date. How do you change that mindset?
2: We exist because the obvious, as you put it, is not the inevitable.
0: I love that line. That's good.
2: Cool. <laughs> these things will not get to market unless there is someone to help kind of fight for them. And, and so I think what that requires is, you know, through through our Rolodex and our partnerships, we were able to get them with folks who have worked with the Department of Energy for, for over fifty years, with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and, and our and our kind of portfolio founders really, you know, their their PhDs from MIT in nuclear engineering. They have to go get their PhDs in regulation in order to do this. And, and nuclear is one of those areas where, you know, we don't think it should just be sort of, a of the wild west, of course, right? There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of things that it's important to, to, to mitigate and understand from a safety perspective. But but I think they have demonstrated that there's a way to do this at sort of the gold standard level of safety that also takes account of these technological shifts that can completely change the world, right? They that can, that can radically decarbonize Uh, industries that have been extremely persistent in in deploying hydrocarbons because that's the most practical answer for them. And in order to do that, you have to start with with regulation. You're not going to, there's no way to move fast and break things with nuclear reactors. You have to do it better and cleaner than the next person. And and that's what I think uh, we and FORM exist to do, is to to help these really critical societal innovations get to market because they're not going to do it on their own if they can't uh, if they can't find a way to kind to of navigate these, these regulatory things.
0: Okay, so this has all been fascinating. Let me just wind up with uh, the sort of big question for each of you, which is uh, the current political environment in, in each of your respective countries. So, starting with uh, Leo, we obviously, we've just done Brexit. We're in the middle of a pandemic, which the US is obviously suffering as well, but so we might leave that to one side, as it were. But we're, we've just done Brexit. And obviously, I was part of a UK government which celebrated tech and reveled in the fact that the, London and the UK were the kind of center of European tech, partly because people could easily move here from the rest of Europe and set up their business. And obviously, we had the chance to kind of sell easily into the European marketplace. What do you think the impact of Brexit and indeed, what do you think the impact of the current administration is on the kind of UK's tech
1: leadership? Well, I think the great thing about tech is that it doesn't need to be and isn't inherently partisan. It's not inherently <laughs> pro or anti Brexit, and so you you can you can have really productive conversations about the future of tech and 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 the kind of the promise of tech, irrespective of of who you're talking to. And I think that's that's critical, you know, sitting in the UK as we go through a massive transition. And the last you know how many years has been defined by such you know political and regulatory division. I think the one thing I I perhaps worry about in the UK is our is our access to talent. There's one absolutely repetitive message from from early stage investing that I think anyone in the, in, in it will tell you is that talent is is the, the key you back teams um not not products and and the UK uh, needs to needs to remain open open to, to global talent the, the other thing I, I slightly worry about is is that we kind of enter this arms race with Europe about you know who's going to be the best at tech most quickly and, and build their own tech giants and I think again anyone, he spends a lot of time in tech will tell you that the sort of borders they, they don't work like that. And I think I'm, I'm always skeptical of policymakers who who sort of say they're going to go out and fund and design and build you know tech champions in their jurisdiction, um, because that doesn't seem to me to be, to be the right way to go. And I think, you know, it would be a shame if the UK, you know, and Europe saw it like that, uh, post Brexit. I think what the UK does have is coming back to the start of the conversation is a newfound policy and regulatory flexibility to to do a lot of the things that we're talking about to take some of the risks that it couldn't take before or didn't want to take for political reasons um to be a bit more innovative and to bring online some of these technologies that you know that sal and 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 we think about all the time and that's a great political win as well because it it shows that that brexit is is doing something and it's a fantastic win for for the tech ecosystem here so that's my feel like that's my hope for what comes out of brexit but there are obviously those those risks as well
0: and sal i mean obviously uh, we've been obsessing about the whole tech policy agenda in the, in, in the US, the Trump administration came across as very hostile to tech and the whole tech lash in and of itself was something that, you know to a certain extent, consumers were focused on. Uh, the Biden administration, I suspect, will be very different. What's your kind of take on how things might look different under
2: President Biden? Yeah, I think we we always approach the market with an opportunity mindset, and and you know certainly new opportunities are are on the horizon here, particularly in areas like renewable energy investments. I think we like Leo uh, at Trust Ventures take an aggressively nonpartisan stance, right? Affordable eye care and affordable housing are not partisan issues, and we don't think they should be. So I think because we're focused on those no brainers, I think we can. We can sort of look at, you know, regardless of the administration, those as things that we can we can push forward. Uh, but the new administration, I think, also should be cautious not to impose restrictions that, that could impede innovation, right? Particularly when it's needed most, right? During during a global pandemic, uh, and particularly with tech becoming a lifeline for a lot of folks during the pandemic, right? For, for instance, the FDA has provided a lot of flexibility uh, in, in 2020 to, to new medical technologies, to... Kind of meet the COVID era's demands. We've made uh, a number of investments in telehealth companies, which were pivotal during the pandemic. And we need to really find a way of keeping those technologies accessible as we enter a vaccinated society. So I think um, you know, there's, there's always going to be you know, some, some good and some bad. And I think the, the goal is always to more of the good and, and try to see a lot more of the bad. So I yeah. think we, we certainly see a lot of opportunities on the horizon here.
0: Brilliant. Well, I loved your phrase, entering a vaccinated society. We're recording this at the beginning of uh, 2021. When it comes out, I'm not sure how things will have moved on, but I certainly hope they will. But I certainly agree with you that obviously some of the uh, silver lining may be the wrong phrase of the pandemic is that there's been a real acceleration in uh, digital uh, take-up. There's a ton of other questions I would love to ask you, but we've run out of time. And thank you very much leo and sal form and trust ventures two people doing very similar things in different jurisdictions really enjoyed talking to you because i as you could probably tell am utterly convinced that um the first hire of any startup should be a public affairs specialist but that's because obviously i'm (laughs) party pre so thanks very much really enjoyed the tour de raison and uh thanks very much for coming on the podcast
2: thanks ed thanks so much
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The View, a production of Kindred Media.